attention or not. Well, I use as an illustration, and Fran, you, you will be glad to know that I use your husband as an illustration because he was one of our fixtures at the tractor pulls, and he was there all the time. And I said to them that right before him I had visited, I, my whole point was none of us know how long we have to live. It says life is a vapor. That was the premise of the whole thing. And I said, uh, you know, I visited a guy, uh, not not uh, Dale, and about a day and a half later, he passed away. And then I visited Dale, which most of you guys know, and about a day and a half later, he passed away. And and then I went on to say that we can know we have a life worth living here and a life worth looking forward to in the future. So I'm about halfway through the day, one of the guys walks up to me and says, don't visit me. <laughs> He was paying attention. I said, listen. And, and again, it was an opportunity also for ministry. I said, well, if I was superstitious, I would agree with that, but I'm not. But uh, anyway, uh, thanks for praying. It was a long day. Uh, I was so tired this morning, I just decided I don't even feel like putting a tie on. So that's why you get me like this. So anyway, but we're going to look at something that you're going to go, okay, do we have to talk about sin? That's not a really kind of the subject that people get excited about. But here's what I know. And we've been dealing with this uh, over the past uh, years about even in the political realm is if you're not willing to call something what it really is, you're never really going to identify it and you're never really going to deal with it. The Bible never makes that mistake. It calls sin exactly what it is, wrong, unrighteousness. And when you know what it is, then you can face it and deal with it. So this morning, we're going to start out with that. But I have to tell you, that is not where we're going to end. I'll probably get a little excited near the end. That's what some people told me in the first service. Because when we get to the end, we see something that no other religion, no cult, no nothing has. And we have an absolute solid foundation that is provided for us by Jesus Christ. No one else, nothing else, no philosophy, no religion, no church, no nothing can ever give us that. So with that as a background, we're going to look at this. First of all, I already mentioned, sin needs to be identified. The Apostle Paul had no problem doing that, and he's going to do it here. Number two, all sin. Notice what I said. All sin is forgivable. You go, hold on a second, there's the unpardonable sin. You know what the unpardonable sin is? And lots of people have all kinds of theories about that. You don't need to have a theory. The unpardonable sin is rejecting Jesus Christ. They call it blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Because you are not willing to yield to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And the truth of the matter is, you will go into a Christless eternity to hell because you've rejected Christ. That's the only unpardonable sin. All the rest of sins are pardonable. And that one there, you can still up to the last minute, like the thief on the cross, you can make a choice to trust Christ as well as not trust Him. There is possible, and this is where we end, I like the song we started with, there's victory in Jesus, because there is possible victory over all sin. And it's based on what Christ has done, and all of us make choices about sin. Don't fool yourself and say, I fell into sin. People say that. I got sucked into sin. No, you choose your way into sin. Step by step by step by step. We'll look at that in a few moments. But anyway, so let's pick it up at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. 
It says there that, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, the kingdom of God is not the same as the kingdom of heaven. There are people that just say, oh, those are just phrases, who cares? No, they are absolutely theologically and biblically different things. The kingdom of heaven literally is the, the kingdom, the heavens that rule over the earth. The kingdom of God is one part of that, but the kingdom of God is something that is not true just because you're here and God is there. The kingdom of God is found in one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, and that's John chapter 3, because there it says, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot be a part of the kingdom of God. You must choose to trust Christ. You must be born again to be a part of the kingdom of God. It is God's eternal and spiritual reign inside of us. It is independent of who you, where you live, what country you live in, what language you speak, what church you say you go to, what political party you follow. It's independent of all of those things. It has to do with a spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ, period. Above and beyond all the rest of those things. That's the kingdom of God. You must be born into that kingdom. And you're born into that kingdom by trusting Jesus Christ. We'll get back to that at the end of the sermon again. But not everybody is in that kingdom. Every person ever born is a part of the kingdom of the heavens. Because you're a part of God's creation. But not all people are part of the kingdom of God. And we're going to see that that is really important. Because the next words that come up is, uh, do not be deceived. Because sin will absolutely deceive us. I'd like to take you to a different passage that makes this, as far as I'm concerned, abundantly clear. And if you write in your Bible, I would ask you to put in the margin Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. I'm going to go to it. You can turn there if you want to, but I'm going to read it. Because Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, I use it many times in counseling. It says this, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today so that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is a delusion. You know what it does? Sin says, this is going to be fun. This is really cool. It won't hurt anything. You know what? I know other people get in trouble with this, but not you. you'll, You'll be okay. That's what sin does. It looks good. And it really does look good. Except the results are disastrous. You see, it's deceitful. How do you deceive somebody? You don't tell them a bold-faced black and white lie because they'll go, you're crazy in the head. No, you just twist it a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And after a while, you're, you're someplace. I've had people say, I don't know how I got here. I know how you did, step by step by step by step by step. Deceitfulness. And guess what it does? Hardens us. Now, to my chagrin, I guess, there was a time long before I was a pastor. I had pastor hands. I know I have dirty fingernails, but, but I had working man's hands. I mean, I had calluses that didn't care what I did. I could use a shovel all day long and it didn't hurt anything. I did a little garden, uh, a little yard work at my house and I got a blister. That's pathetic. You know, I, that wouldn't have never happened years ago, but it does now. 
But you know what? That's hardening. It's calloused. We Sin deceives you and you become calloused to the sin. That's what happens. That's what Hebrews is saying. Don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Little at a time, little, 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 little. And after a while you go, how did I get here? Well, guess what? The Corinthians needed to hear that. They needed to hear that sin is deceitful. They came from a very sinful people, a very sinful city, very sinful society. If you were called the Corinthian, that was a negative because it said you are a very immoral, ungodly kind of person. Yeah, that's how bad their reputation was. Wow. And Paul's writing there, there's a church there, and this is all around them. And so he gives them a list of sins. By the way, I believe in this case, the sins that are listed were very specific to that church. There are other passages in the Bible where you have lists of sins. I thought about already doing a series of sermons of listing all the sins in the New Testament. You all clear out after about a week or two because who in the world wants to hear about that? Well, when you preach through the Bible on a consistent basis through a book, uh, you just take it as it goes. But let me give you an example. In the book of uh, in 1 Corinthians, they were obviously an immoral people. And it's very clear in chapter 5, we already looked at that. But then when you get to Romans, uh, in chapter 1, <clears throat> it has a different... It, there, the emphasis is, they didn't see fit to acknowledge God any longer. And you know the, the sin that is pointed out and, and uh, you know, uh, made bigger... Not made bigger, but to... Um, Expanded on is the word I'm looking for. Expanded on is the sin of homosexuality. And, but it says they didn't see fit to acknowledge God anymore. And when you go to Galatians, it says there, if you walk in the Spirit, you'll have the fruit of the Spirit. But it also says that if you don't, you'll have the deeds of the flesh. And so it spells out a whole bunch of sins that simply are, it says, you live by the old nature, this is what you're like. Basically, you're fighting with each other and everything that goes down. And then when you get to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, it says there, you know what? A righteous man doesn't need the law. The law was given for the unrighteous. And it goes on to say, you know what? If you live according to the law of Christ... You don't need the law. The law is something from the past. It just showed you how sinful you were. And it gives a list of sins. And then in 2 Timothy, it says, oh, by the way, in the last days, difficult times will come. And he gives a list of sins that, if you look at it, characterize our society. And it's like, whoa, these are bad things. I mean, people just love themselves. They love money. They don't care. They're disobedient to their parents. I mean, it goes down and gives a whole list. But each of the lists of sins is specific to where it was written and why it was given. And in this case, I believe these are the actual sins that were taking place in the church at Corinth. And the first one, he already said that they were immoral people. That's the word pornea in Greek. And it is the word that we're going to look at now. Uh, Many versions use the word fornication or something like that. A lot of people don't use that word anymore, but it's a real word. It's a true word. It simply means those that are abusing or misusing sexuality. The point is, it's a broad term. It covers a lot of territory. Pretty much anything that is abuse of sin or sin outside of, I mean, sex outside of marriage is fornication. 
it does include, but not limited to adultery. That's a separate term. It's kind of part of this, but it's not what it's, what it's talking about. This is a broad term. It includes, and we know it includes things like incest. How do I know that? I can prove that because the chapter before says they were immoral. There's an immoral immorality that even the society of the pagans around them didn't tolerate. And they were tolerating it in the church. So we know it includes that. Includes pornography. Guess what? Pornea? Pornography simply means immoral writing. That's literally what pornography means. So it includes that. It includes bestiality, homosexuality, you name it. Premarital sex, that's usually what you think about when you think about pornography. I mean, fornication. I got two words mixed up there. Uh, That's what you usually think of. But it's it's any sex outside of marriage. And let's face it, I'm not up here telling you sex is bad. I'm just telling you it has a proper place. That's what the Bible teaches. They were misusing it and abusing it in every way. And he says, these things, this is not what righteous people do. This is not what righteous people look like. They don't practice that. And uh, you will find in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, it's a verse I'm going to go back to a couple of times here. It says, marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators, that's our word, and adulterers, God will judge. Notice, he differentiates between the two. Puts them together, but he differentiates. And he says, marriage is valuable. That's what the word honor means. Honor means to be precious or to be valuable, to be weighty. It's something very important. He says, but you know what? Those that go outside of God's bonds and boundaries for sexuality, God will judge. So he's very clear about that other places also. But he doesn't end there. He continues on. He says, idolatry. Idolatry simply is this. It is serving an image. We are to serve God through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Anything that is other than God that we serve becomes an idol. It can be a philosophy. It can be a stone. It can be a statue. It could be all kinds of things. But you're serving someone or something other than God. In the Old Testament, we know uh, from what God has written there, he says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And then he goes on to say this, For the Lord your God is a jealous God. Wow. He says, I'm the real one. All the rest of these are fake. And when you're worshiping them and you're following them, You're disrespecting me. There's only one other place that I know of in the Bible where the word jealousy is used in a positive way. Because it's okay for God to be jealous. So that means all jealousy isn't wrong. But there's one other place where it says we are to be jealous. And it fits right in the context here. And that is this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, it says that we are to have a godly jealousy for our spouse. Which simply means this. There is no other third party in any marriage or a fourth party. That's totally part of unrighteousness. See, a marriage is two people. A husband and a wife in a marriage. 
anyone else doesn't belong there, just like that's the real thing. God is the real thing. Any other God doesn't belong there. God has a right to be angry. Call that sin. Guess what? In marriage, exactly the same thing. Only two people have a right to be in that, that relationship. Anybody else, we should be jealous of. They should not be there. So God is very clear. And obviously, these people had idols of all sorts. Remember, they had a temple right outside the city up on the hill that they had a thousand religious prostitutes. Yeah. And they had these false gods that they worshipped and they gave them messages and all these kinds of things, false prophecies. All those things were true in the city. And this church is in the middle of that mess. And so Paul warns them, hey, this is where you came from. And we're going to see that here in a few moments. But then it goes on to say, and, and the word that I told you before, is adulterers. That's not the same as fornication. It's a part of that. It's part of that sexual immorality. But adultery, and we pick this up from the Old Testament. The New Testament word is kind of vague. It just means adultery. But when you look at how it quotes the Old Testament to the New Testament, you find out that the word literally means, and very specifically means, unfaithfulness and infidelity in marriage. It's also talking about unfaithful people that would be leading a country, for example. But it simply means unfaithfulness. If you are a part of a marriage and you are married, you have a responsibility to be faithful in that relationship. Anything that is not faithful, God says he will judge. How do I know? I told you we'll come back to Hebrews chapter 13 again. Because it says, adulterers and fornicators, God will judge. You don't have to guess on that. God is very clear. He didn't stutter. He says what he means and means what he says, and he didn't say it vaguely. He says, this is the way it is. I'll tell you what, we don't live in a world that, that's not real politically correct to say these things. It's like, well, if it doesn't work out, just do whatever you want to do. No, that's, that's not what the Bible says. In fact is, and uh, people don't like when I use this, but guess what? It's not only did I actually go out of my marriage and have a sexual relationship with somebody else. It goes way beyond that. Because Jesus doesn't just take the commandment that says, Thou shalt not commit adultery, and that's what it says. But Jesus, in he, I mean, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28, says this. It says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. That's the word we're looking at. But I say to you... So he's now going to raise the standard. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in her heart. I've had people say to me over and over again, I don't know how I got into this affair. I don't know how I did that. I have no problem. Almost all affairs that I've ever had to deal with as a, as a pastor counselor all were what I would call emotional affairs. They did not start with somebody going, getting drunk, and having sex with somebody else. But it started as, and, and this is the one that really, it, it just gets me uptight. Well, I'm just friends. I have threatened to gag myself the next time I hear that in my office. Because that's how bad it is. I'm, I'm serious. I've heard it so many times over the past 30 years. It, it's pathetic. Because we're just friends. 
No, you have already gone outside. And my, my definition here is this. The, the moment you have your emotional needs met by anyone other than your spouse, you are already headed in that direction. You're already having an affair of the heart. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's not just, oh, just don't, just don't touch some other, other person. No, it starts long before that. When your mind starts wandering, when your emotions start wandering, when your time starts wandering towards somebody else, you're already in the wrong direction. And the Apostle Paul is is just saying, listen, this adultery thing, it's unrighteousness. It doesn't meet God's standard. It just simply doesn't. And then we get on, and these next ones get really politically incorrect today. Because the word effeminate, and you may have some others, uh, like King James says, abusers of... No, no, I'm sorry. Effeminate. I'm I'm sorry, I'm on the wrong one. Effeminate is the word that is used. It says, this is an unrighteousness. So what is it? People go, nobody knows what it is. It's just kind of a blurry concept. I beg to differ. Because the word is also used other places in Scripture. And the way it is used in Scripture, that's how you know what a word means, how it's used. You can go and you can check it out. Well, guess what? There is a very familiar story uh, that Jesus uh, is a part of in the, the New Testament. And it is a man by the name of John the Baptist. Here's what it says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 8. It says, But what did you go out to see? Talking about John the Baptist. A man dressed in soft clothing. That's the word, soft. The same word that I have on the screen. It says, Behold, those who wear soft, same word, clothing, are kings in palaces. Now, what he is not saying is that Herod or Pilate or any of those leaders, uh, they, they dress Effeminate. He's not saying that. He's saying that if you're a king or you're a leader, you kind of dress that way. You, you, you have cloth that's more luxurious and those kinds of things. And you would expect that of a leader, a king. But he said, when you went to see John the Baptist, you didn't expect to see him dressed like a king. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I think there was a, a program or some Grizzly Adams. That's more like John the Baptist. You know, he's out in the wilderness, kind of dressed really rugged. That's what it's looking like. Here's the bottom line of this word. What is natural, what would be in accord with that position, is simply not true. It's contrary to nature. It's opposite of what would be normal or expected. That's all it's saying. Today, people say, well, uh, it's, it's my identity. My sexual identity, my gender identity. The thing is, God made you. Now, normally we say form follows function. In other words, you need to, something to work this way, you, you have the form to it. But that's not how it works. God made us, and the function follows what he has made us. That's the bottom line. This is people who are just saying, I, I, don't, I don't know who I am. You know, and I, I'm, I'm going to choose something different. He says, no, no, just like you don't expect a king to be dressed like John the Baptist, you don't expect certain things. The Old Testament kind of puts it really bluntly. It says, basically there, you know, a man shouldn't wear women's clothes and a woman shouldn't wear men's clothes. We're not talking about clothing here. But the point is getting 
out there. His, there is an identity. We're not to blur the distinctions. And today, that is now something that is, hey, you can be whoever you want to be. And believe me, when I started as a pastor years ago, I knew about these things. And I said to myself 30 years ago, you know what? In my lifetime as a pastor, I'll never have to deal with this. I was never more wrong in my life. Because I've had to deal with it on a regular basis. People, whether it's homosexuality, which is the next word, or this. I just don't know who I am and I'm going to choose to do this. I'm going to choose to be who I want to be and go against what God made me. It's just not righteous. That's what God says. The next word is homosexual, and there are people, and uh, you can go online and you can read this, because there are whole churches that are dedicated to gay, lesbian, and all the rest of the stuff. And they will take a word like this and say, that word homosexual isn't, isn't a real word. It is a real word. You want to know what it means? It is the same word as a marriage bed, and I told you we'll get back to uh, Hebrews chapter 13 again. But it says that the marriage bed is not to be defiled. That word is put together with men. So here's what the word homosexual comes out. It's used two places here and in First, uh, First Timothy chapter 1. It's, it literally is men, plural, in a bed, basically like it would be a husband and wife. That's concept. That's what it's saying. Nothing more, nothing less. And so if you say, well, I don't, I don't know, people, you know, maybe it's not what, what we think it is. The answer is, biblically, it is exactly what it says. It's homosexuality. In fact, is the land we live in, and this is to our shame, 20 uh, in 2003, the Supreme Court said, you cannot have any laws against sodomy. Period. They invalidated every law in all 50 states. Yeah, to preach what I'm preaching now is not exactly politically correct. fact is, it's just the opposite. Because what's well, legal, how can you say that? Because God said it, and God trumps the government. I don't... Boy, that... Yeah, anyway, Trump's any government. I didn't even think about that when I said it before. Now it just got into my head. I don't care if it's Trump or Obama or who it is. It doesn't really matter. God trumps them all. He's above and beyond all of them. And it doesn't matter who said it, no matter how, how illustrious the judge is. It really doesn't matter. God said these things are unrighteous. Keep that in mind. Because this is a little dreary of a sermon, because you're like, this is all negative. And what you need to understand is that during this time, when this was written, Plato wrote a book, The Symposium. Do you know what the book's about? I had to read it when I was at Penn State. It's a stupid book. It's boring. It's goofy. But it's about men loving men. And I don't mean just, hey, we're buddies. I mean, homosexuality. That's what it's about. It's glorifying it. But the thing is, the Roman emperors of that day, 14 out of 15, were homosexual or something along that direction, in that direction. So it was rampant then as it is now. And so the Apostle Paul wasn't politically correct when he wrote this either. It just goes against everything uh, that society was doing. 
So again, we need to understand that God said it, I didn't. Then he goes on to say, the sins that will deceive us, thieves. Simply means, you know what a thief is, somebody that embezzles, takes what's not theirs, they steal. And then covetousness. Covetousness is sort of the bottom line to being a thief. Hey, I want it. And covetous simply is this, is that I have an overwhelming desire that can never be fulfilled for what someone else has, whether it's money or possessions or a position that they have. Hey, what he has, I should have. What she is, has in her possession, that should be mine. That's covetousness. And by the way, I, I purposely wrote it the, that, that uh, definition the way I did because it says insatiable. Because here's the tricky part and the deceitfulness of this sin. If I only had that, I'd be satisfied. You already know where this goes because when you have that, then it's like, oh, but they have that. So, hey, I want that. You know, that's the way it is. It's like a fire. The way you make a fire out is you take away all its fuel and the fire burns itself out. But if you just let the fuel there, it'll keep burning. That's what covetousness does. It just keeps going until there's nothing else. And I can tell you the end result of that is a disaster because you get totally wrapped up in that direction. But it doesn't end there. He says drunkards and you go, okay, we know what a drunkard is. That's someone that's intoxicated. And that's true. I have a real big problem because here it just says drunkenness. And it's talking about alcohol. There's no doubt about that. But today we have all kinds of other intoxicating type things. Those things that influence us. I have to tell you. We have messed up minds enough. We don't need any other substance. And I don't care if it's drugs or whatever it is or alcohol. We don't need something else giving us a fuzzy mind. We already are messed up enough without impairing our judgment and the direction we go, the way we think, the way we feel, the way we interact with other people. We just need to get away from that. Why? Because it says if you're intoxicated, that's not of righteousness. The most famous verse that deals with this is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. There it says, And do not be drunk with wine wherein is excess or dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. He's saying there's there's this uh, diametrically opposed kind of thing. You can live by the Spirit of God and do the things that are spiritually mature and right and godly and glorifying to God. On the other hand, when you get over here, some versions say excess, others dissipation. Bottom line is, this is the way I would describe it, unrestrained recklessness. Alcohol doesn't control you. What alcohol does is put you out of control. So the normal inhibitions are now inhibited. So what, you ever notice? You've all been around, you've been around long enough and people get intoxicated or high on something. They will do things they wouldn't normally do. Why? Because their natural inhibitions are no longer working. Their uncontrolled recklessness takes over. He says, no, 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 no. You need to be under the control of the spirit, not under the influence of something else. He says, that's unrighteous. And uh, he doesn't stop there because he goes on to say revilers. In my lifetime, and I hope I'm not part of this, but I'm not going to say I'm totally innocent here, is the language and the way people react 
and speak to each other has gone downhill big time. That's revilers. It basically is just bitter and harsh language without the concept that this actually means something. That old sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me is a lie. It's part of the deceitfulness. Words go deep. I've counseled with people who can remember exactly what their parents told them in a very negative, derogatory way. In fact, as I can say it, because you don't know the person. person said, I remember, I was eight years old, my parents locked me out of the house and said, we never wanted you anyway. That affected her. She was 55 years old at that. It was still affecting the way she saw herself that day. That's horrible. But you know what? When we have crass and ugly language, it's right here. When you, I just reamed them out. I just gave gave them a piece of my mind. Let me tell you, you need all of your mind. Just keep all your mind. Don't give it to somebody else. Seriously, this stuff is really, really real. And then swindlers, obviously, that's just by deceit and fraud getting what isn't yours. Kind of goes along with a whole lot of the rest of them. But let's face it. If you're going to live in unrighteousness, these things just feed off of each other. Now, that's all the negative of the sermon. Because this is the only part of the sermon I really care about. No, I care about the first part. Because if you don't name sin for what it is, you... Kind of naive. It's like, well, you know, I'm doing this. It's not a big deal. But no, if you're covetous or you're drunk or you're, you know, involving yourself in things sexually that you shouldn't, you need to name it and look at it and call it what it is. It's sin. It's unrighteous. But here's my fav- one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And it's so important. Now, you are told in school never to use Greek and never to put it in front of the audience and you just use it for yourself and you just preach the end result. I'm violating all of that this morning because hopefully I can get my point across in no other way. I can't think of any better way to do it. You don't need to know a whole lot about Greek to to figure out what's behind me here. The word eris simply means it's something that's once and done. It's a you want to really fancy? It's a ponticular. It means it's a point in time. It happens. It's once and done. It's not ongoing. That's what it is. And middle and passive are absolutely important. Middle tense. And by the way, I had to take Greek to learn this. I never learned it in English because guess what? I didn't pay attention in English. But middle tense is the subject of the sentence is acting upon itself. So I could say, I got out of bed this morning. I got myself out of bed. Faye, Faye yelled at me, get out of bed, it's time to go. But uh, I, acting upon myself, got out of bed. That's middle tense. The subject, acting upon itself. Passive means somebody else is doing it to you. If she would have came over and threw me out of the bed, and she's never done that, but if she would have, that would have been passive. It wouldn't have been passive when I hit the floor, but it would have been passive because she was doing it to me. So that's all you need to know. Now, here's the theology. And if you don't get this right, by the way, almost every commentary I've ever looked at has this wrong. And I mean really wrong. Because they'll say they're all passive. If that is all passive, that means you didn't have a choice in any of your spiritual life. Somebody did it to you. God did it to you. That is not true. That's not what it says. And some people say wash means baptism. 
If that's true, and it's not, because other commentaries say that, well, I was washed, that means you got baptized. That would mean, middle tense, you had to go and dunk yourself or sprinkle yourself or whatever you did. You would have to do it to yourself. Nobody does that. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. By the way, the Bible teaches believers' baptism. You get baptized after you believe. So here's what it comes down to. Is, and such were, look, look, look in the verse 11. And such were some of you. You need to know one more thing about Greek. And such were some of you is imperfect tense. It means it was something that used to happen in the past. This is the way you used to walk over here. You were all of these unrighteous things. That's who you were. But you know what? It's past tense. It means that is no longer true. In other words, I don't have to continue in sin. I can and do have victory in Christ. Because the old is the past. And such were, past tense, you used to be this. But you were washed. You had to make a choice to become a part of the kingdom of God. You needed to trust Christ. You needed to be born again. And you, and only you, can make that decision. God will never force you to do what is right. God will never force you to trust Jesus Christ. He does not do that. But He does bring conviction, no doubt about that. When the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world of sin of righteousness. Uh, uh, yeah, anyway. I can't believe it. I, I, I should have never done that. But anyway... Of sin of righteous, uh, judgment and uh, righteousness and judgment. I can't believe it did that. Anyway, but the point is, he convicts us. But we have to make that choice. That's middle tense. I must choose to trust Christ. Nobody forces me to do that. If you've not trusted Christ, that's where this starts. But here's the next part. And this is where it really gets good. It's because the moment you trust Christ... God does something. Passive tense. God does something to you. Once and done. He sanctifies you. The word sanctify simply means set apart. He sets you apart from the way you used to walk over here. The old way. You know, and such were some of you. He sets us apart from that and sets us apart to God. That's what sanctified means. Set apart from something to something. Wow. That's called new life. That's called life. It really is. Because that was death. That was unrighteousness. That deserved hell. Judgment. All those things that we talked about. Over here, we have freedom in Christ. It's all here. Because he set us apart. That no longer controls me today. Wow. And then, goes one step further. He says, and once for all time, he declared us righteous. That's the word justified. He said, it's not because you're good. It's not because you've done something that deserves this. He said, on the basis of what Christ has done, and he has paid for all of your sin, he declares you right with God. He declares that you meet God's standard. Not because you're good. Not because you've done anything or you deserve it. But because you've trusted Christ, Christ's righteousness was added onto you. And now he declares you right before God. You're not acquitted. You were that. 
But He's declaring you on the basis that your sin has been paid for. He is now declaring you right before God. Declaring that you meet God's standard. That's what we have. We have victory. We do not have to live in the past. In fact, as we're living in the past, you're living a lie. Because that's not you anymore. If you live in that way. But we live over here. We live in what Christ has done for us. We made a decision. Born again. We're now part of the kingdom of God. And he says, I'm going to set you apart. Out of that old muck. Out of Corinth. Out of the world. Out of sin. And I'm going to set you right with God. And then I'm going to declare you righteous. It all happens instantly. And it's once and done. It's not an ongoing thing. We've been studying in my Sunday school class that most cults mix these all together. And it's a mess. And you have to continually be justified and set apart and all that. And you have to go through all this rigmarole to make sure you do it. And you have to pay for it and all that kind of stuff. No! This says once and done. You get saved once. Just like you were only born one time. None of you have been born physically two times. If you have, somebody needs to show me because I've never seen it before. It's once and done. We say, hey, this was the time of birth. This is the date and this is the time And nowadays, everybody has one of those certificates that says that. That's never going to happen again. Well, guess what? Spiritually, it never happens again. Because once you've trusted Christ, you are now alive, spiritually. Just like you were born and you're alive physically and functioning in this world. But then God does two more things. Sets you apart and declares you right with him. You know what? That's the victory we have. We are more than victorious through him who loved us. That's Jesus Christ. More than victory. Above and beyond. It's not just scraping by. It's victorious. Last week we talked about Nike. The word for victory. That's the one we're talking about. We excelled. It's not just scraping by. It's we have victory. I don't need to live that way. That's why the title was, and such were some of you. Past tense. It's what I used to be. But that's not me anymore. Years ago, at Garden Chapel, uh, myself and a couple of other guys put together a Christian 12-step program. It was biblically based. Everything was about Christ. We did it for, I don't know, about three quarters of a year. We had one of our Sunday school rooms every Tuesday night filled with people. And one night, and most of these people had been to AA and some other therapies and all kinds of stuff that basically said that week after week, you'd say, I'm Paul Malfer, I'm an alcoholic. I haven't drank in 28 years. One of those deals. Guy puts up his hand in class and says, is this an overcomer's group? And I knew what that meant, but I said, what's an overcomer's group? He says, well, do you believe that you can be an ex-alcoholic and now you can... Say, I'm not an alcoholic anymore. I said, yes. Why? This. Such were some of you. That's no longer true. You're now sanctified. You're now set apart. You're now justified. You're now declared right with God. You know what? Within three weeks, that whole thing just dissolved. Because they had been so brainwashed and so indoctrinated with the world system of doing things that they're like, yep, I was an alcoholic, and my identity is, and such were some of you. That's not what the Bible teaches. 
My identity as a Christian, these guys were claiming to be Christians. My identity is with Christ. He's the one that did it. He's the one that saved me. He's the one that gave me a new identity. I'm not going to go back there. By the way, I'm not telling anybody that's had problems with those things to go back and try a couple of drinks now. Because you already know you're vulnerable. Don't do that because you can fall back. No doubt about that. But you know what? I'm no longer identified as an alcoholic or a drunk or whatever. I'm identified as a Christian. I'm identified with Christ. I have a new identity. I have victory. That's what I have. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can live in victory. We should live in that victory. We have no excuses for not living in that way. Let's all stand together as we close. Father, as we bring this to a close, if anyone's just simply not sure that they've ever trusted Christ and they've they've experienced the washing of regeneration, of new life, Lord, I pray that in just the quietness of their heart that they would admit that they're sinners, admit that only Christ has paid for their sin and ask Him to forgive them and to take over their life. For the rest of us, I know me, I, and I think if we're honest with each other and we call sin for what it is, we realize that sometimes we go back and we live the way we used to. Absolutely no excuses because you have given us a new identity. You've given us a new life. And we have no excuses for going back to the old ways. Whether it's our mouth, it's what we drink, it's, it's how we relate to people uh, morally. Oh, it doesn't matter what it is. Lord, show us those things that we can confess them and live out the righteousness and the sanctification that you've given us. Lord, we thank you that we have that victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. God bless. Go with God and be a blessing to someone else.